Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, chapter one. As you're turning there, happy new year. Happy new year. A new year brings a beautiful chance. New beginnings bring beautiful chances to look back, um, to, to, to see and examine what happened in the last chapter, and then to look forward and to examine how things might potentially go this next season. New beginnings are a beautiful time to recalibrate. That's why you have all the New Year's resolutions that we found out in Family Bible Hour and nobody has. Um, but those are, those are perfect moments to look at our lives and to say, okay, let's recalibrate. Um, let's kind of re- restore the, the mission, um, find again, rediscover again the whole purpose for why we're here. The New Year is a great time to recalibrate and examine how you're doing in your own walk with the Lord. Um, Look back on this last year and see victories of the gospel. See areas of growth. See areas where God has proven himself faithful in your life again. Maybe you can look back on this last year and see areas of struggle that you want to look at and and be a little bit more um, proactive in this new year. Maybe you've seen areas of complete failure this last year. Well, welcome to the club. The Christian life is a life of a bunch of uh, failures that God redeems for his glory. So as we stare at our own failures this last year, we look to the cross, we look to the gospel, we look to grace to motivate us to be transformed in the image of Jesus Christ. It's a great time to recalibrate where we are individually, where we are as a church, what we're doing here. And so as we recalibrate individually, I wanted us to kind of turn our attention to our church. Um, what, is, what is your mission individually and what is your mission Being a part of CBC. Why are we here together as a church? Why do we gather every Sunday? Why do we gather every midweek meeting? Why do we gather for women's studies and men's studies? Why do we do that? We we planted a church three years ago. Now we're entering into our fourth year. And it's a great time to just go back and remember. What's the purpose? What should our priority be? What should our passions be as a church? How do we know what they should be? Well, we know from God's word. And if we're thinking about church planting, if we're thinking about what we should be doing as a church, there's no better place to look than the New Testament with the book of Acts and with the pastoral epistles that Paul gives to us. Paul was an amazing church planter. And so this morning, I just want to remind us of why we're here as we look at Paul's passions for the church. Paul had many passions. We're going to just look at five of them this morning. Paul had many passions for the church, and I believe they should be, they must be our passions as a church. So, passion number 1 that Paul had. Paul had a passion for the church to magnify God. Paul had a passion for the church to magnify God, to see him as big as he truly is. Ephesians chapter 1 is where we are. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Paul writes, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world." That we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have received redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Which he lavished on us. 
In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Jesus would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Paul just on a a big, long run on sentence says, look at who God is and look at what he's done. Look at who he is. Look at what he has done. And notice he's writing to a church who knows Jesus, who knows what he's done, who knows who he is. So he's not writing to people telling them for the very first time. He's writing to people who know this truth. This isn't new information, but it's soul-stirring information that's going to remind them again of how big God is. But if we're honest, just like the church in Ephesus, we are prone to forget and we need reminders of the grandeur of God, the glory of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ every single day. That's why we went through the study that we did this last semester, the cross-centered life, keeping the main thing the main thing, making sure that the gospel is central in everything we do. So Paul is writing to people, asking them, don't ever get over what God has done. Don't ever get over who God is. That's why he says in verse 15, for this reason I too having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, so you love him, and your love for all the saints, and it proves itself by your love for others, right? If you love God, you will love others. The greatest commandment. If you love God, you will love others. If you love others correctly, it's because you're loving God. Love God, love others. You're doing that, church. Verse 16. I don't cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And what is Paul praying for? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So I pray that you would have wisdom and understand a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, may be opened. Right? We used to sing that song all the time. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. I know who you are. I want to see your glory on display. So that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. So you know it, but I want your eyes to be open to see it again. I want you to see God. Paul prays in verse 18 that the eyes of their heart may be open. Literally in the Greek, may be being opened. It's a passive. God needs to open your eyes. You can stare as much as you want to at this book, but with fleshly eyes, you will never get anything out of it. And so Paul says, I want your eyes to be opened by God to see him, to magnify him. I love that word magnify because it can have two meanings. The first meaning is to take something that's microscopic, that can't be seen by the naked eye, and blow it up larger so that you can actually see it with a, a microscope or something like that, where you can actually see it blown up. That's definitely not what God is to us. God is not microscopic, and he's so tiny that we need something to blow him up. The other way that you can use the word magnify is to take something that's truly enormous, but it seems small in our vision, like a planet. 
so huge, but it seems small to us for various reasons. And we need an instrument that will magnify that image. So it's enormous, but something has caused it to seem smaller to us. That's exactly what Paul is praying for. God is huge, but because we're humans and we're sinners in our heart of hearts and in our flesh, the vision of God that should be is not there. And it's gotten smaller. It keeps shrinking. Every day it shrinks if we aren't combating it to magnify God. Now, this church knew, just like this church knows. Ephesus knew, just like CBC knows, God is not small. God is big. We know that. Just like we know that Jupiter is big, right? Jupiter is huge. We know that intellectually. I think it's the biggest of the planets. I might be wrong. We know that it's huge. But just because we know that it's big doesn't mean we see it for as large as it truly is. Something's in the way. In the case of Jupiter, 500 million miles are in the way between us and Jupiter. That's what makes it small in our eyes. Spiritually speaking, sin can cloud our vision. Chaos in life brings anxieties that make us look at ourselves and our own worries start to blow up and God starts to shrink. Maybe it's a lack of time in the word or lack of time with other believers in fellowship or lack of time in the church or lack of time serving or sharing the gospel. All of these things cause our sight of God to shrink and be clouded. And so Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened so that you can see God for who he truly is. In a very real sense, what Paul is praying for is that you and I would be telescopes. We're called to be telescopes. People who make the greatness of God seem as great as it really is. That's what it means for us to magnify God. But you cannot magnify what you haven't seen or what you quickly forget. And that's why Paul says, I don't want you to forget. I want you to magnify God. Let him him become larger in your vision. He can never be too big in your vision. So blow him up in your mind, blow him up in your vision, open your eyes to see and be a telescope. That's why we pray, verse 18, open the eyes of our heart. That's why we pray the psalm, soul, forget not, Psalm 103, forget none of his benefits. We're so prone to forgetfulness. And so Paul says, I don't want you to forget. This is all over every letter that Paul writes. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're still in Ephesians, verse 7. Paul says this. I was made a minister of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. And then what does he say? Verse 14. This, so verses 7 through 13, this is how big God is. This is the purpose of the church. Show forth how amazing God is. Verse 14. So for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, whom, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Son in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So he says, this is who God is, and this is what I want you to know. I want you to know, comprehend his love, to know his glory. I want you to know that he's greater than you can possibly imagine. So magnify him in your life. Colossians chapter 1, you can just write Colossians chapter 1. It describes the majesty of Jesus. This is who God is, and I want you to know how majestic he is. Paul knew his Old Testament. Paul knew the Psalms. Paul knew that the Psalms were always displaying this kind of language. Blow up the vision that you have of God even bigger. Make it larger. Just listen to some of these. Psalm chapter 40, verse 16. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. We love his salvation, so let his salvation continually be grown in our midst and in our eyes. His glory be seen and savored. Or Psalm 34, verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Or Psalm 69, verse 30, I will praise the name of God with song and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. So Paul knew that we all need to magnify the vision that we have of God and make it bigger in our sight. Remember Romans chapter 11, uh, verses 33 through 36, when Paul is describing how God's going to work out his plan of salvation in Israel. uh, He's saying God is is greater than you could possibly comprehend. He's bigger. His plan is bigger. It's more um, intense and intensive than you could possibly imagine. And he just breaks out into a doxology. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, that's what he says in Ephesians, this is what the outworking of it is. He can do more abundantly. Israel is hardened right now. Their hearts have turned away from God. He can do more than we could possibly ask or even think. He can do that. And so that's why Paul says the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. This is his doxology. Oh, how deep they are. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's become his counselor? Who's given to God that he should repay? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul desires, his passion was that the church would see Jesus for who he truly is. Magnify a vision of Jesus in your mind. So as individuals, we're called to be telescopes. And as a church, collectively, then we're called to be an observatory. Together, when we all come together, we are a people which will magnify God like an enormous observatory. We're a church that's causing others to come in and to stop and to think of, to stop thinking of God as small. Stop thinking of him as small, but think about him and see him as large and as grand as he truly is. That's why Paul is constantly preaching Christ. He's bigger than you can possibly imagine. Acts chapter 13, he magnifies God in the eyes of the Jews. Acts chapter 16, the sermon at Mars Hill, he's magnifying God. The God that they don't even realize that they're worshiping. The unknown God. He says, I know that God. He's more amazing than you could possibly comprehend. Acts chapter 24, before Felix, he gives a testimony where he magnifies God. Acts chapter 26, before Agrippa, he magnifies God. God must be magnified in our midst. And that's what Paul's passion was for the church. Individually be a telescope. Collectively be an observatory. Paul knew that rightly seeing God for who he truly is will change people. So he says, please see God for who he truly is. 
That leads us to number two. Paul's passion is to see and savor God's glory. He wants the church, number one, to magnify God. And as we magnify God, the church will see and savor the glory of God. Paul wanted God to be magnified in the eyes of all around him, but it doesn't just end there. Paul knew that if somebody would be changed, not just modified, not just behavior modification, but radically transformed, you have to taste and see that the Lord is good. You have to see and taste of the glory of God. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. I love this passage of scripture. You know verse 18. We turn there a lot, but I want you to see the context. Because Paul is discussing glory. He's describing glory in a massive way. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. If the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, that's what we read about this morning in Galatians 3, if the law, if that ministry, remember ministry of death, meaning it cannot give you life, you cannot keep the law perfectly and thus live, therefore it's a ministry that has been given by God just to show us our need for a Savior. So it's called by Paul here, the ministry of death. And letters engraved on stones came with glory. So all it can do is condemn you. The law can't save you. And yet it's still glorious, as we read in Galatians chapter 3. It's still glorious. So the sons of Israel couldn't even look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory on his face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? So the law was glorious, so much so that you couldn't even look at Moses' face because you would be blinded because his face had been in the presence of God. In the glory of God. So Paul says, how much more so the new covenant, the gospel, how much more so is Jesus going to have glory because he brings life? Verse 9, if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, so we have a glorious truth And hope in Jesus. Having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. So if you're in Christ, it's been removed. But to this day, wherever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, so we've seen the new covenant, we've seen Christ, the old, uh, the the law has been um, completely redeemed and and completely um, made perfect through what Jesus has done, perfected in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. We with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, justice from the Lord, the spirit. It's glory that changes us by beholding glory. We are transformed. Is there something in your life that you want to change? Again, New Year's is a great time to look and to say, are there places where I need to grow? I think if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you'll say yes, because you will see the spirit at work in your life, convicting you of sin. Even non-believers will say they need things to change. The difference between the way that we change things and the way that a non-believer looks to change things is seen in this passage. Unfortunately, I think non-believers, their philosophy of change has crept into the church. 
How do we as believers change? I think the philosophy of non-believers has crept in the church to say, well, just do three things, a 12-step program, and you'll change. Just do, do, do. Do this, do this, and you will change. Now, as a believer, are there a lot of do's and don'ts that we should be a part of? Absolutely. But that's not what changes us first and foremost. Yes, there is a doing. But what is the doing before we do any action, before we do any external thing? What's the doing that Paul says will transform us? In verse 18, it's beholding the glory of God. So we don't turn to programs. We don't turn to application first and foremost. We turn to glory. Glory is what will change us. Glory is the doing. Beholding is the doing. Beholding the glory of God. And notice, once we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So degrees. If you're anything like me, when you see something that you don't like in your life, you go, I want that out. I'm done. And I want whatever the quick fix is, finished, done, and I'm never going to struggle with that ever again. We want a program. We want the so-called microwave Christianity. Just beep, 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 done. All right, we're finished. Uh, Paul says, no, no, this is degrees. Transformation takes time. It takes time. The Bible declares the the walk of a believer with Jesus Christ, not in terms of like a, a microwave, quick fix, it's finished, but the kind of crockpot Christianity. It takes a while. You just kind of have to simmer. But you simmer in the glory of God and you will be changed. John Piper says it this way. Many Christians, especially newer Christians, long for a method of discipleship that will change them quickly by just following a few clear and doable steps. I would caution you from pressing too hard for such a foolproof method. Such approaches to growth and change often lead to disillusionment and sometimes to a crisis of faith. Why isn't this working for me? I think that's so key. We think that the power of God is somehow held in a 12-step program or do these three things and, and then you'll be sanctified. And then when the results don't happen, we don't question the program, we question the faith. Not changing as fast as I want. Piper goes on to say, God's way of growth is more like the watering of a plant. That's kind of boring. <laughs> or the feeding of a baby than a, than a, a, a building a, of a wall by, brick by brick with a manual in our hands. So it's, it's more of you water a plant and less of build a wall brick by brick. He says this, when you build a wall that way, you can see every brick put into place and measure the progress. You hold the brick, you apply the mortar, you place the brick, and voila, growth. But Christian growth is not like that. It's more organic and less in our control and usually much slower. It's from degree to degree. That's why 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2-3 through three say that uh, we are like newborn infants who long for the, the milk of the word. If you were to look at Tyler, uh, look at him today and, and then look at him tomorrow, would you see any change? Probably not. Would you see a change at the end of the week? Maybe a little bit. Would you see a change at the end of the month? Yeah, you'd see a little bit of a change. You'd really see a change at the end of the year, right? You'd see a huge change. But from day to day, you don't really see that much of a change. And that's exactly why God uses that as an illustration of what the Christian walk looks like. 
That's a child growing. Do you control the, the growth of the child by adding inches and pounds to the child? Okay, you need to grow, Tyler. Here, let's stretch you out. Boom, you've grown. No, what do you do? You feed the child, you bathe the child, you protect the child, and God gives the growth. So what does Paul tell us to do here? Stare at the glory of God, and God's going to give you growth. He will. He will change you. This is what we do every Sunday. This is why we gather together and we stare at the word of God, we stare at the glory of God. Um, There are many people who ask me, and they're they're always so kind about it. To say, you know, I, I, not, that, not that you're a bad preacher or anything, but I don't always remember, like, the points you're making, and is that bad, is that wrong? Hey, I don't remember the points I'm making either. Don't, be, don't think that you're offending me. Uh, does anybody remember what I preached on two weeks ago? You'd have to either go through your Bible, and I don't, I'd have to jog my, I, I know, because I was going to ask that question, so I went, i got to figure out what I preached on. But there are many people who think, okay, because every sermon isn't memorable. Now, there are sermons that are memorable. But because every sermon isn't memorable, we tend to think, well, I don't need to be here. or This is kind of boring. Small groups, same thing. Are there some small groups where it's life-changing? Absolutely. We've all been in those small groups, right, where sin is confessed, grace is given, uh, a road of application is, is paved out and glorious. We've been there. And sometimes, most of the time, if we're honest, most of the time, most sermons and most small groups are not memorable that way. Right? Can we all just be honest? But if you're looking to every Sunday to be something memorable, I think you're misunderstanding the point. Um, sermons and small groups are, are less, less events and more like a meal. Do you remember what you had to eat last Tuesday for lunch? Probably not. Um, I don't remember what I had to eat yesterday morning for breakfast. But here's what I know. What I ate kept me alive. Those meals keep me alive. And so just because it's not a fanfare of, you know, going to Black Angus or something like that, Every meal, all the time, beautiful, this is great. Just because it's not that way doesn't mean that it's not still saving your life. That's why Paul says, stare at glory. That's what we do here. That's what we're going to be doing in Family Bible. I would just encourage you guys, it's only an hour before you would normally come to church. I would encourage you to come. Um, We are going to be going through a series with Mark Dever. I called him up and said, can you please come out and and teach us and he said no i've got a church and so i said well can we have a dvd and he said yes so we have a dvd of him teaching on the church Um, it's going to go through several aspects and what we're going to do is watch it they're about 15 20 minutes we're going to watch them and he's going to share from god's word kind of what we're doing this morning what the priorities and passions of the church should be and then we're going to take that information we're going to go together circle up the chairs and dialogue about how our church is doing compared to what the bible says we should be doing just continually recalibrating. We gathered together to savor glory. To savor glory. Paul does this in a magnificent way in all of his letters. All of his letters are split very nicely in the middle. <clears throat> like the book of Ephesians. It's split in half. Chapters 1 through 3 all detail the glory of God. The character of God. In chapter 4 through 6, all details how we should live in light of his glory, 
we kind of split it up into two words nicely. We, we have the indicatives of who God is and who you are, and we have the imperatives of how we should live. But if we flip those, if we say, okay, I need to do certain things and live out these imperatives, and then I will be this way in Christ, we've just jumped into legalism. That's everything that we've been studying with the cross-centered life. We've jumped into a performance mentality walk with the Lord where he will love me when I do. No. You do because he has loved you and lavished his grace upon you. Every book is like that. Ephesians is split that way. Um, Colossians chapter 1 through 2 is who God is um, and who we are in Christ. And then chapter 4, chapter 3 and 4 are the imperatives. Now this is how you should live. Romans does this as well. It's not as neatly done, but chapter 1 through 11 is who God is and what, who we are in Christ, what he has done on our behalf. And then chapter 12 through 16 is the imperatives. This is how we live. Therefore, my beloved, be the living sacrifices. This is how we live. That's exactly what Paul does here in Colossians, or in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, you guys are there right after he says, we are beholding the glory of God. Verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, therefore, because of that, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we don't lose heart, but we renounce the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So it's glory that changes those around us. It's glory that changes us. It's the job of the church to show forth glory. And the glory of God is revealed in the scriptures. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. I love this quote. He says, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can. Jonathan Edwards said, my job as a pastor and a preacher is to raise your affections as high as I possibly can. Provided two things qualifies. They are affected with nothing but the truth. So I want to raise your affections provided they are affected with nothing but the truth. And secondly, with, with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. So the truth and then not competing with what the truth clearly says. I want you to love God more. And so how do we do that? We show forth the glory of God. Is there anything in your life that you see that needs to change? Don't go running to, okay, what do I need to do to fix it? How do I change it? Give me a couple steps. Give me a couple things. Let me, what do I have to read? What do I have to do? Stare at the glory of God. You will not change as fast as you want to, but you will change by staring at glory. Number three, Paul had a passion for the church to make disciples. So he had a passion, number one, for the church to magnify God. He had a passion, number two, for the church to see and to savor the glory of God. And then once we see and savor the glory of God, we are going to go out and make disciples, share the glory of God with them, and let the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ be seen and savored by those around us. Paul had a passion for the church to make disciples. There isn't that much that really needs to be said on this. Paul wouldn't be a church planter. Paul wouldn't be a missionary going on three missionary trips if he wasn't concerned about evangelism and making disciples. Second Corinthians chapter 5, you can just turn there really quickly. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 through 21, he says, We are compelled 
to preach the gospel. We are compelled. Um, start in, in verse uh, 12. We're not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in their parents and not in heart. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ compels us. It controls us, but it, it forces us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they, might, they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So we're compelled to share that with others. Drop down to verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal, begging through us. And so we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. This is Paul's passion for the church. Make disciples. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, Paul helped to plant a church in Thessalonica. Acts chapter 18, he planted a church in Corinth. And he was there for a year and six months. Acts chapter 18 uh, through chapter 20, he visits Ephesus. He plants a church there. He stays there three years to admonish with tears every day and plead with people to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. You say, yeah, but, but Paul was, he was personally commissioned by Jesus on the road to Damascus. You remember, blinding light, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Let me show you how much you must suffer. And that's never happened to me. It's understandable if Paul did it because Paul had this amazing experience where God blinded him with glory, spoke to him directly, and gave him a commission to go. If I had that, then I would go. Then I would make disciples. Well, you know, you and I have been given a commission by God. Matthew 28, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We have been personally commissioned by God himself. He has given us marching orders that we are to go into the world and preach the gospel. Paul said, that's a mission that I have, and I want the church to have that as well. You must have that, and we as a church must have that as well. Number four, Paul had a passion for the church to shepherd the disciples that were made. Paul had a passion for the church to shepherd those disciples. Paul didn't just plant churches and leave and never come back. Sometimes he came back to visit personally. Sometimes he wrote a letter. Sometimes he sent friends back to get a report and bring it back to him. Sometimes he sent leaders that were fully equipped to go and do the work in the church. Sometimes he did all of those things. But he never left the church alone. He shepherded them. Let me just give you some chapters and verses that you can write down. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. He strengthened the disciples with truth and hard words, it says. Acts chapter 15, verse 41. He strengthened the churches with his teaching. Acts chapter 16, verse 40. He encouraged the church by being with them and meeting with them on a daily basis. Acts chapter 20 is all about him shepherding the church. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse, uh, chapter 6 through chapter 9 is all about uh, practical application of shepherding those who are disciples, how to be holy, how to walk with the Lord, how to see the glory of God, and to give, even financially, at the end of that uh, section of Scripture, the way that Christ gave. So Paul knew that the purpose of the church was to edify the saints. Go make disciples, bring them in to edify them. We as a church believe that. We as a church believe that we gather to edify the saints and we scatter to evangelize. Um, there's a, a huge uh, philosophy in, in the movement of the, the church growth movement that would say, tailor your worship service to non-believers. Do whatever it takes to get non-believers in the, in the door 
and then just evangelize non-believers. Now, should evangelism be happening in a worship service? Absolutely. That's why I hope and I pray that we would bring our friends and invite our neighbors and coworkers to come here on Sunday morning to hear the word of God preached, to see glory, and to hear the gospel. But I believe the Bible is very clear, and I praise the Lord that our leadership believes this as well, that Sunday morning is for the church. The times that we gather are for believers to edify, to shepherd believers. What happens when a church decides to make it their goal to church the unchurched on a Sunday morning, bring in as many unchurched people and church them on a Sunday morning? What happens is not that the unchurched become churched. It's the exact opposite. The church that exists in that church become unchurched because you're not feeding, you're not shepherding them. So we gather for edification and then we scatter for evangelism. Gather for edification, scatter for evangelism. And we do that because Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 13 tell us that we've all been given the work of the ministry, gifts to go do that work. And Romans chapter 15 verse 14 says that we can admonish one another with the truth of God's word and encourage each other, shepherd each other. Shepherding happens on a Sunday morning. Shepherding happens in the middle of the week through fellowship, through small groups, through accountability. Shepherding happens when the word of God is proclaimed and when you dialogue about it together and you you stare at the glory of God together and you walk with him. So Paul had a passion for the church to magnify God. Paul had a passion for the church to see and to savor the glory of God. Paul had a passion for the church to make disciples and then shepherd those disciples. But number five, above all things, the thing that Paul was most oriented around was a passion for the church to treasure Jesus above all things, to treasure Christ above all things. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You should still be in 2 Corinthians. Just go to chapter 10. Paul had a passion for the church to treasure Christ above all things. Chapter 10, verse 3. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Take every single thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Why? Because he is Lord. He is master. We need to take everything that we do, everything we hear, everything we think, everything we say, we need to take it and put it under submission to Jesus. He is above all. And not only is he our Lord, but he is our treasure. He's our treasure. We need to be devoted to him above all things. Turn to chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says this, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are, you are bearing with me, for I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin, but I am afraid. I'm afraid. Those are words that you would never expect Paul to say. Paul is never afraid of anything. If you guys remember in the book of Acts, he goes into Lystra to preach the gospel. And as he's preaching the gospel, people stone him. And they think that he's been stoned to death. So they take his body, they throw it out of the city, and then they close the gates. And Paul isn't dead. Some theologians would say that he actually died but was raised by Jesus. I personally believe that he was just so beat up that they thought he was dead and they put him outside. Either way, he comes to in such a way that he gets back up, nurses his wounds, and where does he go? He goes right back into the city gates, back to Lystra. These, these people just stoned him with giant rocks pummeled at his head. And he said, I want to go back. 
He's not afraid of anything. But here he's afraid of something. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The serpent deceived Eve, and by his craftiness, your minds will be led away from devotion to Christ. And he says it's simple and it's pure. It's not, it's not complex. It's difficult, but it's not complex. It's simple. Love him more than anything in this world, and it will change your life. Be devoted to him. Paul is afraid here that Jesus would become an afterthought in your mind and not every thought in your life. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, you know it, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus is everything. He is my life. You know Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, everything was made by Jesus so that Jesus would come to have first place in everything, right? Jesus doesn't want to be number one on your list and then everything else falls with priority under him. Jesus wants to be your entire list. If anything else is on that list, you need to throw it off. Jesus is everything to you. And Paul says, I want Jesus to be your greatest treasure. Everything that you do is done because of his love for you, in light of who he is. Magnify your vision of who God is and let it expand in such a way that everything you do is done to treasure him more. That's Paul. Just five quick uh, passions that Paul had. I mean, every one of those passions could be a sermon. Paul had a passion for the church to magnify God, to see and to savor the glory of God to make disciples, to shepherd those disciples, and to treasure Jesus above all things. That's our mission statement as a church. That's why we exist as a church. So as we recalibrate individually, as we recalibrate collectively as a church, what are we doing here? Why are we here? We're here to magnify God and savor his glory. We're here to magnify God and savor his glory because that's the only thing that will truly change our hearts. Magnify him and savor his glory. And then we're here to make disciples and to shepherd those disciples to value Jesus above all things. That's what we're here for. We're here to shepherd you. We're here to shepherd the people that you would bring in through these doors. The world needs to hear about Jesus. As Jesus himself said, the fields are white for harvest, but the laborers are few. We need laborers. So, as we begin a new year, Can I just ask you this in light of the Lord's Supper this morning? Where is it this last year that you were doing instead of beholding the glory of God? Have you ever grown tired of trying to do something and you just think, well, God's way doesn't work? Maybe today is the day to confess, God's way always works. I'm not doing it God's way. I'm trying to do this on my own. I'm trying to do this in my own strength. And I need to savor the glory of God. That's why we gather, to savor God's glory. That's why we sing. There are certain truths about who God is that cannot just be expressed through speaking. They need to be sung. That's why we gather as a church family in small groups and together one-on-one. We gather to remind each other, this is the glory of God. Let's magnify God. We can all just live with the assumption that God's glory and his, his enormity is always being shrunk in our minds. We're, we're fighting a, a very difficult uphill battle. And so when you get together with, something, with somebody and talk about anything, you know that God is diminishing 
just because of our sin and indwelling sin in, in our flesh. And so we run back to God and we say, hey, I, I want to see God's glory. Can you help me? Where am I missing his glory? Where am I missing his grandeur? I want to be undone by the glory of God. Are these the passions that are in your heart? If they're not, I would just encourage you to search the scriptures. See if maybe this year, 2017, would be a great year to recalibrate your mission statement as a person before the Lord and to align your will with God's will, with what his word says, and to live in such a way that you magnify him, you savor his glory, you make disciples, and you shepherd them to treasure Jesus above all else. Father, I know that we are um, always in need of your grace, and we are uh, prone to wander away from this mission. We are prone to become reliant upon ourselves. We're prone to, to being stagnant and not even moving forward. And God, we need your grace. And that's why we come here to this table. It would be so easy as we examine, examine ourselves, and we must, we should, It's a requirement biblically for us to examine our hearts before we partake of the Lord's Supper. But it's so easy for us as we examine our own hearts, it's so easy to terminate there and just say, I'm a failure. I've completely dropped the ball again. I've completely messed up. I can't seem to get my life in order. I don't love you enough. I don't love others the way that you demand. And it would be easy to to fall into despair, hopelessness. God, I pray that we as a church, as we look inward, we would see our sin and then we would quickly look upward and outward. That even in this moment, we would magnify the character and the grace of God. That we would see and savor his glory by sending his one and only son to be crushed on my behalf. That he called. That his sovereign grace loved me before the foundation of the world and he he came to purchase my soul. What a beautiful celebration last week to be able to enjoy and rejoice in the birth of the Savior who came to die. But he didn't stay dead. He rose with newness of life to offer power to conquer the power of sin and of death. So God, we look inward, but then we look outward and upward. We look to Jesus. And that's why we celebrate. That's why these elements bring joy and not despair. Because God is for us. The God who was against us And the God whose wrath was abiding on us made a way, knowing that we could not do anything in our own strength to reconcile ourselves or to remove the wrath. You said, I love them so much that I will make a way. I will provide the lamb to take away their sin. And so we are reconciled. God, these elements bring great joy. These elements bring a removal of fear, a removal of guilt, a removal of shame. These elements remind us again and again of how big you are, how glorious your love and your grace is. And they remind us 
that we have a job to do as your ambassadors, as those who have been purchased with the price, the price, the life of the Son of God. We have a job. We've been commissioned by the one who purchased our souls to go and to make disciples and to shepherd them to value Jesus above all things. God, that's an easy task when we realize what you have done and how you have saved us. So God, as, as we prepare our hearts and as we sing in preparation, may we remember, may we remind our souls as we sing that there is no other hope apart from Jesus to be forgiven, to be reconciled. There's nothing in us. God, may we see the indicatives of who we are in Christ because of your doing and then see how we should live and not flip those around. God, keep us, protect us, guard our hearts from legalism. And as we sing and prepare our hearts to partake of these elements, may your glory shine forth as your grace is unmerited favor. We did nothing to deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. And therefore, we are, are hopeless apart from you. And with gladness and gratitude in our hearts, we just say thank you. We love you, and we pray that as we prepare our hearts now, you would be pleased to show us your glory and magnify your Son and his sacrifice in our sights. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.